is wrong with the human race. Just this past year, a mother won a court case, uh, and she evicted her two sons. In that court case, she cited her sons as parasites and big babies. Um, Why would this mom say that? She's a 75-year-old woman living in Italy, and she was suing her two sons, who are 40 and 42, because they did not want to move out of the house, nor did they contribute to any cost. And get this, this is what the boys said through their lawyers. The Italian law says that parents are required to take care of their children as long as it is necessary. Oh my, as long as it is necessary. What is wrong with our world that people would argue with their mom, their elderly mom, to do this? It's sin. It's sin that's showing up. And again, sin to our contemporary ears, to, in our society, seems archaic and foreign. For these two 40-year-old and 42-year-old to expect that their mom should still take care of them shows you we've lost sense of reality. How do we explain this? As you saw in uh, the first video, the word sin for the first time we see in Genesis chapter 4. And what we're going to look at tonight through the story of Cain and Abel is the elusiveness of sin, the power of sin, and the hope to defeat sin. And what we want to get to and what the main passage we're going to focus on is verse 7, where it says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You see in our passage that Adam and Eve, after the fall, they had two children, one named Cain, the other named Abel. And verse (coughs) 2 Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. And in verse 3, we see it's time for the boys to bring offering to the Lord. They say it's through the course of time. So we don't know when this took place, but they must have understood the, the offerings, the sacrifices, what they needed to do. And so the younger brother, Abel, brings an offering that's the firstborn of his flock. His older brother, Cain, simply brings fruit from the ground. And there has been confusion regarding, okay, is it because it was an animal offering and there was a fruit offering? But what you see is that word for offering specifically in Genesis chapter 4, it's used over 100 times in the first five books of uh, the Bible, the Pentateuch, and over 100 times it's used as the word for grain offering. This is not the same as sin offering. Um, it has a Hebrew word, mina. And so this offering wasn't meant to go to God for, to ask for forgiveness. No, this was meant to show your complete dependence and reliance upon God. It was a symbol of their dedication to the Lord. In our society, we have a good example of a symbol of our dedication. And that would be with an engagement ring or a wedding ring, the band to symbolize total commitment. And I had the privilege a couple of weeks ago to do a wedding uh, for Brian and Joy. And during the exchange of the rings, I asked both of them, when you have this ring, this ring is symbolic 
of my never-ending commitment, love, and devotion to you. And then, so let me ask you a question. What if a man went out and bought a very expensive ring, brought it to his girlfriend and said, I want to marry you. May I give you this ring? He gets down on the knee, gives her this ring. But then the girlfriend finds out that he has been unfaithful to her. And he still gives this ring. What do you think she's going to say to him? Oh, thank you. It's so beautiful. I just love it so much. I, I'm, no, she's going to say, what do you mean your commitment? What is this token thing that is there? Is this a form of bribery just to get something out of me? We have to understand this is Cain's attitude towards God. He's not giving his very best. As you see in 1 John 3, 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. They weren't saying that, hey, murder, yes, murder is a problem. But they're saying before the murder, his deeds were were evil. You see, Cain, he gave God his leftovers. He wasn't wholeheartedly committed to the Lord. Cain was wholeheartedly committed to himself. What Cain was doing was he was coming to worship God, but he wasn't truly worshiping. He wasn't prostrating. He wasn't giving his all to the Lord. He was loving God for what God could do for him, but not for God himself. You see, Cain is trying to earn the favor of the Lord, and he wants to live his own way. Cain's problem here is just like the average person who attends church and has half-hearted obedience. This is the person that comes to church and tries to live a moral life, but then they expect God is going to hold up his end of the deal. They have this mindset that my obedience should therefore equal God in essence, blessing me. And how does this play out? And it plays out, sadly, all the time in churches. A family can start attending church. Their kids are getting involved in the kids' program, in the youth's program, and they're just so actively involved. But as the kids get older and sports start to take over, their participation starts to dwindle. They dip out on God. It can happen with the empty, empty nester who has just entered retirement, and now they're thinking, it's my time to enjoy myself, and their commitment to church falters because it's time for them to go on all their trips, and they lack their commitment that they once had with the church. Half-hearted obedience is what has taken place in the heart of Cain, where he's not offering God his very best. Cornelius Platinga wrote a great book on sin called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And in this book, he says this. You know what? At the heart of half-heartedness is this. Sin is treating yourself as your own first cause and God, therefore, as an accessory. Sin is acting as if you're God, you're the one. You use God to get your end. God is the means to your own joy and happiness and to your own agenda. And now you see, we would never explicitly say to God, you owe me. But what happens in our life, and we don't realize the crouching of sin, is we start acting like it. We start acting like, Lord, haven't I given to your mission? Lord, 
please, I mean, help my family to be right in the right way. And if I come to church, shouldn't this kind of work out this equation? Please, Lord, give me some success. Please, Lord, just give me some peace. Cain is mad at the Lord for having no regard for his offering, but the Lord knew he gave without faith. And I want you to see in verse 6, I want you to see God's first act of showing mercy to Cain and grace to him. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? I want you to notice the wonderful mercy of God in this. God knows why Cain is angry. He knows why he's upset. He knows why his face has fallen, as the Bible says, that Cain may have been despondent or depressed because his offering wasn't accepted. And notice this, the wonderful gentleness and patience of God. When God asks questions in the Bible, he already knows the answer. He he knows all things. He's not looking for information. When God is asking a question, he's trying to get the person to understand their heart, who they are. He's trying to help Cain figure out what's going on inside of him. What's the thing that's moving him? You see, he did the same thing with Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, he says to them, where are you? He does the same thing with Jonah and saying, why are you angry? You see, God is asking questions because he wants people to reveal to themselves, whoa, what is this sin? What have I done? I want you to realize this. Cain does not understand what he's doing. He just wants his own peace. He wants his own way. He wants to live according to his own plans, and he's despondent. He's despondent of what has taken place. Half-hearted obedience isn't just Cain's problem, it's a you and I problem. And we'll see in verse 3, what I want you to really understand first is, verse 7, sorry, first is the elusiveness of sin. Sin is crouching at the door. Notice this, in God's kindness, he's reminding him and telling him, be careful. Sin is crouching at the door. Sin is there, and it's a warning to him it's about to attack. Um, Sometimes I don't love my cat, but sometimes I do love her. My cat, Noelle, I like to say she's like a dog, okay? She is one that she always, when you are done eating, or actually when you are eating, Noelle is up there at the table ready to eat all your scraps, okay? Just like a dog. You try to push her away, she comes back. And she's just waiting there. And you look at her and you're saying, get down, get down. But she's just waiting there, ready, ready to pounce on your food, ready to take it. And when you don't know it, now I'm realizing she's getting up and putting her face in our pots and pans, even when they're hot. She doesn't care. She wants to be fed. Mind you, we do feed her. But, but the thing I do love about her is when she takes care of the mice and sadly, the chipmunks that are outside. She just gets in this pose, and I love it because I've seen it in the garage happen a couple times, where she's just there, and she's just ready to attack, ready to pounce. And I know this mouse has no shot. Noelle is going to get you, and when she gets you, she terrorizes you. She doesn't just, okay, lop you off, game over. No, she's going to beat you, let you run again, pounce, beat you, let you run again, pounce. 
This is what sin is in our life. Ready to attack, ready to pounce. It's elusive. It's powerful. Sin is crouching. It's hiding itself. And we try to rationalize it away. (coughs) Excuse me. We try to hide it away. Sin is elusive in our culture because we try to mask it with words. For example, we try to mask sin with words such as it's a slip up or, oh, I I just had a, a misstep. Oh, you know, those teens, they just lack judgment. Um, it ju- it's just a blunder. Oh, they were misguided. It, it's, it's a misunderstanding. It's a misunderstanding. Or as uh, my kids say to me, I, I didn't mean to do that. Like, it, I, I didn't mean to. I don't know what happened. I just don't know what happened. You see, our society also has a problem with sin. Let me give you an example. Just recently, I was reading about it in the Associated Press. Chronic school absenteeism. What is that? Missing more than 10% of the school days. In 2018, 13% of American students uh, missed more than, uh, it would say, 20 days of school. Now, 28% of America has missed that. Again, remember, we have a hard time in our society admitting things are wrong or sin are a problem and laying the blame at the parents. One parent said this to the Associated Press, Renee Slater. Her daughter rarely missed school before the pandemic, and the last school year she was a straight-eight middle schooler, but she decided on staying home for 20 days because she just didn't feel well. This is what the mom says. As your kids get older, you can't physically pick them up into the car. You can only take away privileges, and that doesn't also work. The mom happens to be a school teacher as well. So what are some things that, again, our society, we have a hard time with sin, because I know if that was my situation, I would be running to the car. I'd be running to school if I missed it because it wasn't allowed to be late. But parents, they say it's too hard. So schools have taken drastic measures. Let us start the school day later because maybe the kids need to sleep in. Um, Let's um, incentivize the teachers. If the teachers are coming to school, we'll give them a little bit of a bonus, and that will encourage their students to come to school. In Ohio, they tried to pass legislation where they would have a bill that if parents got their kids to school, 90% of the time, each kid would get $50 a month. $50 a month, okay, just this year to fight against this. This is our society. One person was so mad, they were like, so basically, my property taxes go to give you free school, but now I have to pay more property tax so that you can go to school, get paid to go to school. I mean, I would like that, get paid to go to school. Our society is insane. Do you understand that? This concept of wrong, this concept of saying, hey, mom and dad, get your kids to go to school. How hard is it? This is your responsibility. Oh, no, we can't do that in our society. We, we're so blinded, we don't realize sin is crouching. This concept of original sin and people being born evil is so foreign. I mean, haven't you seen it in the news with the attacks against Israel where people are justifying it and say that Israel is a apartheid state or they were the oppressors and they've been oppressing, so therefore it's justified? We are morally bankrupt as a society. We have minimized sin. 
We have minimized these things. Sin is crouching. It's crouching. It's saying, I'm not here. It's saying, hey, don't believe into it. Hey, don't buy into it. It's crouching and it's ready to pounce. And sin is hiding personally. The worst sins in your life look smaller than to you than anyone else. Your sin is lurking. God is saying to Cain, listen. Listen, Cain. Warning. Flashing lights. I see your future, Cain. I see that you're going to murder your brother. Sin is balled up in you. You're going to do something wrong. Warning. Warning. Wake up to what is about to happen. Because it's crouching. We try to rationalize sin. Even amongst Christians, we try to downplay sin with different terms and different responsibilities. Here's one thing. We rationalize sin and say, oh, it's just a character defect. Or we say when we have a strong personality is a justification for having an abrasive attitude. Oh, you know, I mean, the only reason I yelled at those kids or my wife, you know, I'm just a type A personality. It's just how my personality trait is. You know, on those scales, it says that my personality is an otter. I mean, a lion. My wife is an otter. So you know how that mixes. This is what happens. This is the excuses that we use. We say that, oh, when I'm in a, I have an addictive personality, so I can't really control my sin or overcome my temptation. Or we say it, it's a family curse. You know, my dad did it and he did it. So therefore, no, no. This is the problem that we have. We don't want to take ownership in our society. We are the victim society. Someone did something else. This is our problem. Sin is crouching. It's ready to pounce. It's ready to attack us. What are the crouching sins that are in your life? You see, this would be a good assignment for you to do after this sermon. Do you have a list of the sins you know you are susceptible to? Because everyone falls into temptation of various kinds. You're tempted in various ways. Do you know that? Please don't leave here and say, oh, I can't really think of anything that I do wrong. Whoa, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself, okay? You should understand and have a crouching sin list. Tim Keller writes about this with grudges. For example, you have a grudge, and here's what a grudge will do. It will crouch. That means it will get over and say, well, I'm not a bad grudge, or I'm not a big grudge, (laughs) I'm not really bitterness. You know what? I'm righteous indignation. Most people have never been treated that way. Oh, you know what? I'm not really angry. This is just, you know, I I like justice. It's crouching. Sin is crouching. Or this mindset, sin is crouching. Hard work should pay off. So, hey, I've worked hard, so my boss should recognize this with a bonus. I've worked hard. My kids should appreciate me. My wife should show more affection to me, all that I've done. I've worked hard, crouching sinless, or fantasizing, fantasizing about material possessions, career success, what should happen in your life, visualizing the future. Do you have a crouching sinless? Do you have an idea of the sins that are lurking in your soul? Do you have a list of areas in your life where you know you are susceptible to minimizing or masking so you don't feel bad about sin. 
You see, here's this list you need to understand. Some people excuse uh, workaholism with being conscientious. You'll say that your grudge is just moral outrage. You'll say that your arrogance is healthy assertivism. You see, you're vulnerable. You and I are vulnerable to downplaying sin in our lives. We have to come to understand that. And this is why, notice again in verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Sin is elusive. And notice this, its desire is contrary to you. Sin is powerful. Think of King David. You're the king. You're the one that you slew the giant, Goliath. You've won battles. God spared you when King Saul was trying to literally spear you to a wall. Sin is crouching at the door, and he put himself in a compromisable situation. I mean, we know the end of the story, him committing adultery, Bathsheba, but how did he get to this place? Not recognizing sin is crouching at the door. He should have been at battle with all the rest of the soldiers, but he decided to stay back. Everyone knew in that society, historically, that people go and bathe on the rooftops. He didn't need to go there. But then also, as it's crouching and he's battling against sin and his ego, King David says, who is this woman that I see there? When he finds out that it's one of his mighty men, his trusted warriors who's fought a lot outside of him, who's been in the cave with him, it should have stopped him. But sin was crouching. It was building up. It was powerful. It was luring him in. And he could have stopped it. He could have stopped it, but it was building up. Sin is powerful. You see, that's what he was susceptible to, and he let it take over him. Think of the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter, the rock on which Jesus Christ has built his church. You know, towards the, right before Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus tells him he's going to deny him three times, and he does. So we know that Peter has a problem with being a respecter of man and not a respecter of God. And you see this happen again to him in Galatians, where the Apostle Paul says that he had to rebuke Peter to his face, because here's what's happening. Peter is there with the Gentile Christians eating meat, enjoying himself. He sees some Jewish Christians come and he turns and runs away and tries to deny them. He's susceptible to being a respecter of men. That sin was crouching and the Apostle Paul had to rebuke him. So what do we do about this? This is why it's so important in our church family, and why we've established small groups. One of the reasons you need Christian friends who are around you who will speak the truth in love. The Bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend. You need people in your life that will let you know that you have done wrong. I can't tell you how many times, even though it hurts and it's an ouch moment, but Pastor Walker has had to come and tell me, hey, what you did that wasn't right. Ooh, that hurts. I don't, I don't like that. But when you go back on that, do you realize how much benefit this is, not just to me, but to my wife and to my kids? Do you have people in your life, Christian believers, that can come alongside of you and say, hey, 
the way that you're talking with your wife, the way that you interact with your kids, hey, the way that you're looking at your career, something is off. Do you have the ability to hear? Do you have the humility to hear this? It's so important to be involved in a small group, in a D group, in a loving community where we have iron sharpening iron, where we come along one side, one another, and bear one another's burden and encourage one another in the faith. This is one of the things that I love the most about one of the youth ministry and working with the youth leaders is just that ability where we are holding one another accountable. None of us have arrived because I have a title and position, so what? I am a sinner in need of a savior, and I need people to pray for me, to love on me, to help me when I fall and struggle. Do you have that in your life? Do you have that person, those people that can come alongside of you? It's so important. Back to our text in verse 7. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. But there's hope to defeat sin because why? God says to Cain, you must rule over it. There's hope for Cain that he can rule over his anger. God is telling him that he's going to give him the ability not to succumb to his temptation. What the Lord is saying to him, and this is good news for us, is that Abel is actually not Cain's biggest problem. The Lord's rejection of his offering is not Cain's biggest problem. He is miserable because of his sin. You see, you can't be a victim and blame ship. There is hope there, though, because his greatest problem, our greatest problem, is our own sin. What does this mean? Maybe you have been mistreated in life. What God is saying to you is, you're not miserable because of what has been done to you. You're miserable today because of your response to what has been done to you. And I hope you hear this very clearly. You can face various difficulties in life, but how do you respond to it? And again, it doesn't absolve responsibility from those people, but your greatest enemy is inside of you, not outside of you. We all have to give account for our own sins, what we have done, not what others have done. So what does this mean? We are responsible for our self-pity. We're responsible for our anger and our bitterness. We're responsible for our pride and our absolute insistence on getting our own way. We are responsible when we are miserable. And it's not because of what's happened to us, but it's our response to it. Sin is our main problem. And this is so important for us to understand because often we'll say our children, our spouse, our health, those are the problems. No, how you and I respond to difficulties in life is our responsibility. This is what the Lord's saying to us, but there is hope there because we can do something about it. Even after Cain killed Abel, God comes to him one more time. Notice this, verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel's brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, notice this, where is Abel your brother? The second act of mercy. I hope you don't miss these parts. 
He's giving him a chance to respond. Again, God already knows what's happening. He already knows what's taking place, but he's giving him an opportunity to confess his sin because he recognizes what has taken place. Cain is the most miserable person because sin has devoured him. Sin has taken over him. Sin has controlled him. And we hear the Bible says uh, in verse uh, 10, And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. On the other side of the cross, the scripture tells us that in the coming Christ, we come to know that Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood is crying out for justice. Jesus' blood cries out for justice, but the justice, we deserve the penalty. Jesus took the penalty that we deserve. Jesus' shed blood is shouting out for forgiveness today. It's shouting out for hope today. You and I can have victory over sin, but we have to understand what we are susceptible for. We need to have a crouching sin list, and we need to know that God can give us a way to resist temptation. We do not have to be like Cain. We can be like Abel. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Lord, I pray for our church family that they would take that opportunity. Maybe it is to talk to someone in their small group or a close friend that can speak truth to them and say, hey, there's some things in your life that I think you want to change. Because, Lord, you know we are all in this process of sanctification, desiring to be more like you and less like yourself, less like ourselves, Lord. I pray that we would have your eyes, Lord, as we see other people and your eyes as we see ourselves, Sinners in need of a Savior, Lord. People who need to die daily to ourselves. We love you and thank you. In your precious name, amen. You are dis-